Welcome to the Buck and Bernie Show. Yeah, this is uh, this is a very special uh, segment that we're going to do, which is very important as well yeah. to our region, uh, as well as what's going on uh, nationally when it comes to um, you know single you're coming in and immigration and the people that I have worked in my kitchen with. Which when I was in San Diego, my um, my team was a hundred percent from Mexico, and it was the most beautiful awesome people I ever work with. Right. So we are approaching Cinco de Mayo in a few days here. And so we have our very good friend and one of my favorite persons around the community and beyond is uh, Rihanna. She is the head of the Moab Multicultural Center. So she's here with us today and we're going to talk about, well, let's talk about the Moab Cultural Center first of all. You're the head of it. You've been there for a while. So tell us the story, when it started and what it does. Sure. The Moab Valley Multicultural Center and the Mexican um, community members and neighbors that we have here in Moab, you know, can't that tale can't be told without us. Uh, we cannot separate those two. Certainly, um, this is my 11th year as executive director there. And the center was founded... We got our 501c3 in 07, but certainly grassroots organizations start before they they get the paperwork in the mail. And shout out to uh, Leticia Bentley, who um, with her friends, uh, many of them members from the Episcopal Church here in town, St. Francis Episcopal Church, saw the need uh, to have a resource center for Moab's growing immigrate, immigrant uh, community. And Leticia was a teacher at the time, so... Uh, she, she's a teacher who accidentally became a social worker, and that's how the the multicultural center started. and And our our early beginnings, um, truly, we served mostly immigrants here in, in the community, and we're an all bilingual staff. And today we have um, five bilingual Spanish English uh, speaking employees there, and uh, a couple more that are, are not bilingual but are. Our reach has grown as well. Probably about 65% of our clients now are immigrants, mostly from Mexico um, still. But our, certainly we are helping much, many more people in the community that, that don't come from that subpopulation. Yeah, as my personal experience, you know, I, I was chef in California during the 80s, came back to Moab in 91. And, you know, in California, I would say... 90% or so of the kitchens are, are Mexican. And back then, it was, we actually had a process to hire Mexicans that didn't have their citizenship yet or anything. There was a process where we could make them legal, and it was just a matter of uh, going through, you'd go through attorneys, you would advertise in the paper for the job, and just the paperwork process. And I think it took about a year, basically, for them to be legal and get right. their... Um, and then when I came to Moab, there wasn't much of a Mexican community then. It no, was just, no. I know it was, I was, I was very, uh, you know, I had to hire, um, mostly young locals and, uh, had a difficult time, <laughs> you know, they, they, they didn't know any kitchen know-how or anything. And I really missed the Mexican workforce and, mm -hmm. and, 
And then it slowly came about, you know, little by little, as Moab grew, uh, so did the the Mexican community. And, and it continues to grow. And it so. continues to grow. So I was able to hire, but there wasn't a process anymore yeah. to make them legal. It, no. it went away, in, I think, in 2001, right? Is that... Basically, yeah, there's there's so many different laws that have been enacted um, between the the 90s and now. And certainly since Reagan did the the big pardon, you know, the amnesty for for everybody in the 80s, there's been so many different things that have changed um, with immigration law. Um, So, yeah, we the Multicultural Center is is fortunate enough to have we have formalized the services that we offer for uh, immigrants, not just from Mexico, certainly any any immigrant from anywhere. We work with uh, an immigration attorney who's only practiced immigration law for, I think, 15 years. She's, she's wonderful, and we have a contract directly with her, so we receive training um, as, as non-lawyer navigators, and we can ask all of the questions that would be pertinent to what kind of benefit or issue that they're having. And then our attorney can consult directly with us and sometimes directly with them, depending on what information is missing. But if at the Multicultural Center, to have that kind of service, it's only $35. And the average immigration attorney in Utah is $225 for one hour. So it's highly subsidized. Um, It's a really efficient program. It's, you know, somewhat limited in the scope of what we can do, but we help a lot of people with naturalization, DACA renewals, renewing their green card, adjusting status through a family member. Um, And then there's any issues, you know, any uh, criminal concerns or things like that, we can certainly um, refer out to specialists in those areas as well, um, or help, just help people who are are navigating that process, because it's really complicated. Well, I know that over here, uh, there has been a shortage of, uh, of, um, I would say, workforce all throughout, not only in food and beverage, but it's a little bit everywhere. We, we definitely need more people to come in from, a, I mean, from anywhere, pretty much. Skilled employees is pretty much this is what what everybody is looking for. Uh, I, in the meantime, let's not forget that it is the responsibility of whomever is hiring that person to also give proper training. And this is sometimes things that we don't really pay attention and we forget it a bit. So you get the person and you assume that that person knows everything about the job. But there is always, you know, uh, a way to learn. And you can definitely continue your learning curve, even for us, as of today. So I have a question. In the movies, when you see the cooking show, there's a, it's a restaurant about a, you know, restaurant workforce. The, the chef yells out directions and everybody in the kitchen says, yes, chef. <laughs> is that a thing? And if they're Spanish speaking, did they say, see, sí, chef, is that no, a thing? Well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what happened. The friend, the, I mean, if you look at, at, the, uh, at the kitchen, like in France, for example, it was run as a brigade. Brigade was very much military style of running of many, many kitchen. But not only in France, it was everywhere. And uh, uh, the thing that I have learned, if, I mean, I was running, I had three kitchens, between three kitchens, I, have, I had about 60 people in the kitchen, six zero. So I had a lot of people. But it is so much better to remember that you are spending a lot of time with your employees. 
you're spending more time with your employees than you're spending with your family and vice versa. So I think that it is very important to be respectful and to also be very supportive. And I always called my kitchen as the Zen kitchen because it was like we didn't have radio. Everybody was having a good time. Everybody, you know, really help each other, love each other. And I think that as they always say, happy kitchen, happy food. Happy food is great food. But besides that also is you had to remember that there was always been friction between the front and back of the house. And if you really run it properly and with a lot of love and making sure that you you still need to hold people accountable to, to standards and, and behaviors and everything. But if you do it right, you know, it's you you have the perfect i would say the perfect operation can be a perfect restaurant or or whatever operation you're running but the yes chef that you see on television this is for television it's like you know when you 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 hear those guys uh on the cutting board then they are chopping something and you you hear the trust me it doesn't really happen that much in the kitchen but on tv oh yes they call it sound bites that's a sound bite. That's what people like to hear and see. Well, things have changed in the kitchen since, yeah. like, when I started in the 80s and that. It was really regiment, and it was, yes, chef, and and very strict. Because, I, you know, I, I did train under a French chef that was had the bullishness of, uh, <laughs> of that because that's the way they were. That's the way they were trained, and, that's, and then they came to the United States, and that's what they expected, and that's... The, the way they ran but things have evolved since then because of labor laws and stuff they they did realize that uh uh abuse in the kitchen uh can't happen anymore well, they popularized and, chef ramsey who's always screaming right at right i know i know i know i know that i know but it was like that it was yeah it was it was like that but it's not like that even in his kitchen it's not like that kitchens were ran different than your, yeah. your basic uh other businesses and that. you know I, I am an immigrant so uh, when i came in i didn't have a green card i i got my green card when i was working at uh, restaurant maison blanche uh, right across the white house and the chef the, the chef became the chef of the white house but um i do understand what people have to go through uh it took me and at that time that was in the 80s it took me three years to go through the process of having a green card so much bureaucracy and then um you know uh, it was, there was, it was a lot of uh, people were really taking advantage of a lot of the immigrants, especially if you are not speaking fluently the language. So they just like it's, it's really, it was really a challenge, and uh, it got really, really much better. But I think that we chefs are the one who have to be the the role model for example, in our kitchen, to make sure that we really care and we really support and everything that I was just saying uh, before that. Yesterday, I was watching something on television with, there was a piece with John Oliver, and it was about the uh, immigration and what's going on when it comes to the farming communities mm -hmm. in the United States and how much, uh, how much trouble, how much, um, uh, God, I'm, uh, how people are really so... Uh, mistreated. I mean, it's just, it was, I was very, uh, I was very upset. Yeah. I was very upset because it was like, how can this country do something like this? We have rules, we have regulations, we have laws, but there is always people who will try to bend it for the dollar. And that's, yeah. that, that just I see the, the mistreatment going hand in hand, usually along with 
how saturated a, a market is for in Moab in the restaurant industry the the immigrant clients that I've worked with in the last decade there's such an employment shortage so if, if you are going to mistreat somebody they're going to go work for somebody else and it's very easy to it's you right can, you can leave your job and have another job within the hour so um here i see better wages you know correct better it, treatment. it does do that in this community because yeah. there is such a, a small work pool yes. that it does not it drives up wages it because does. and and therefore i mean wages were actually a lot higher than most places because yeah. of that, yeah. Because it is such a, and Moab is such a unique place, you know, because of the labor pool yeah. and getting experienced labor, especially in the kitchens and that is just it's it's very difficult. So when you do get them, yes. you absolutely want yeah. to keep them. And farming and is not huge in in our community. I mean, we have some outskirts, but there's there's some working ranches that you know I I, I know, uh, and certainly those. Um, I've seen those employees treated very, very well. We get advocacy groups coming through Moab sometimes, and they spend a little bit more time in the Green River area with all of the the watermelon farms, mm-hmm. the melon farms and things that they're growing there. But I, I think, again, they're they're so desperate for the labor force that they, you know, the, the treatment and the working conditions <laughs> tend to be better because they're so, like, don't leave. We need right, you. Right. I, I think also that because... We are in a smaller community. We really do care about our neighbors, and we don't care which nationality they are, where they come from. It's just we have a community who was really, uh, was really warm. It's a warm community. I mean, I've been here for two years, and I, I can tell you that um, everything that I've experienced or and that I've seen is that everybody really care about each other. Mm-hmm. So this is it's completely different than. It, big cities or you know i mean different area different uh, energy different dimension but over here where we are here it's really really awesome yes yeah well and i also think because moab is how the spotlight and, and small that the the immigration department what, what's the name of the immigration department uscis yes the ice States, is what they or, call or it yeah ice that's that refers to the the policing department of uscis <laughs> In Moab's not under the scope per se, but that's not saying that they don't come in here. Oh yeah, they they and, come regularly, and they do come not, regularly. Um, uh, but it's really. I don't know. It it it's sad that we do not have the process, the easy process of making people legal anymore. Yeah, and that really they have to work right under these circumstances. So a lot of. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done for the two different sides in our, our government to come to agreement. Well, that's the problem. That's the because <laughs> the they both ne- know we need it, but they can't work together to yes. solve the problem. This and this has been a problem for 20 years or so. Yeah, and it's it, it's a solvable yeah. problem if they would just do it. Yeah. We got you know you look at Europe, they have challenges over there like crazy as well so i mean i think that uh different de- depending on where you are you also have you have migrations who are also uh different throughout the world and throughout even our, our the country our country the united states so it's you know this will always be uh, a challenge the only thing also that we have to remember is it still have to be very much controlled 
because if you get out of hand, then you get big problem as well. So it's just a process that needs to be uh, to be refined and, and redefined all the time. The only thing is you cannot have you cannot be changing laws every every time that there is a uh, another term because otherwise it just confuses everybody and you don't know exactly what's going on and people can be really cut into that web and that can be really that can be very very detrimental to themselves and their family because you just don't know what to do and where to go and we're human beings i mean it's like you know it's we, we kind of need to also be safe and to be happy where we are. Yeah, we need a stable long-term solution and laws. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you always hope. And I, I, I thought that maybe with the pandemic and now the, the real shortage of labor, what we're going through, that maybe that they would come to the plate and say, hey, we need to solve this. But I think I we'll see the return of more. You know, Moab um, for years had, we saw a lot of um, J-1 uh, visa yep. employees and um, H2B. And with the pandemic, because the travel was restricted, none of that was available. But I think that we will again see H2B visa workers and J1 students back. That's what I've heard from some friends of mine who are in Aspen and Telluride and uh, who are very much into s- seasonal staffing. It's a very good program. It's a great program. It's an awesome program. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen. When I was in California, I was really uh, exposed to the Mexican culture, mm-hmm. which I hadn't, you know, coming from Moab, I wasn't exposed to that. Mm-hmm. And I was exposed to it in California, working with them, and then seeing their culture and experiencing their culture, especially in Santa Barbara, I had that experience. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 was, it was an eye-opener, mm-hmm. and it was great. And then coming back here and seeing that, culture come about in Moab mm-hmm. and blossoming because I had employees that had you know basically I was in business here for almost 30 years so I got to see that culture expand and develop and and it, it it's become a bigger part of Moab which yeah, is great we have uh, small businesses that are mm-hmm. Latino owned and run now much more than when I first moved to Moab in 2010 it, it is I, I agree it it is blossoming the school, um, the schools as well. Yeah, because they are very, you know, as we know, the Mexican culture is just family oriented, and they're getting their roots here now, and you see that, and which is great. You know, it's it's, you know, it was so upsetting when uh, the former president was like just demeaning, just demeaning the immigrants in the Mexican culture. It was just so horrid and so hopefully we're beyond that and moving forward things will get better so before we're going to go to food i still would like to know besides um the very large uh i would say um latin uh population coming in and that you're helping which other countries which other uh uh, people are you helping? Oh, goodness. Um, Moab is seeing an expanding Turkish uh, immigrant population, also Filipino. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been a, a joy to, to learn more about. And then certainly, of course, before we were ever here, right, the Diné people. And we, you know, there's a, a quite a large population kind of in, in and out. But we, we have a, a lot of clients that are Navajo as well and you know it's it's a big mix 
So their their circumstance and problems, I would assume, are different from Mexican or Latin in the community. You know, running a, a resource center certainly, I think that the the services that that are that are requested are kind of what we're all experiencing. I don't think it's um, while you know immigration concerns are specific to immigrants. I think that other other populations, it's just kind of the social issues that we're all dealing with here as a community, the housing crisis. So, you know, MVMC is doing a a huge deal of homelessness and housing crisis-related work right now. And that, you know, sometimes when we, we have... The Navajo Reservation, there's so many jobs here, but there's not the housing. Same thing with, with immigrants, right? Like there's not the economy there, but there's places to, to live. So it's, it's really, it creates sort of these issues of overcrowded housing, nowhere to live, um, so, so many jobs, but not the other things that we might need to be um, healthy or, or safe and well. So when it comes to housing, what are you seeing? Because, so we have that problem here. I have my friend, I mean our friend, who was a, was a chef uh, in Telluride at Cosmo. He's been the owner for a long time. And he's been helping his staff to uh, to get housing and all those things as well. But it seems that all of those smaller um, township, I would say, who are isolated. Because when you look at it, you know, we are, there's really nothing around for about 100 miles. You have, if you want to go to Grand Junction mm-hmm. for, a big, for a big city, it yeah. seems that there is a major, major challenge when it comes to that. So what are you seeing in Moab when it comes to try to resolve that solution. problem, that solution? Yeah. Um, a lot because I mean this is what I do. I'll spend a lot of my time doing. Um, there is a there's a group called the, the local homeless council, and we meet once per month. And there are subcommittees of the local homeless council that uh, one subcommittee is called coordinated entry, and we discuss what resources that are existing to address what those barriers are to housing stability and how we're all working together to share them, because. You know, things like addiction, mental health, domestic violence. These are the three biggest barriers that we know that are preventing people from having housing stability. And then the the more super obvious one is that we just don't have enough housing and that it the affordable housing is going away at a faster pace than it's being built. Fortunately, it is being built. We had tons of housing just come online out at Arroyo Crossing. So the local homeless council is working really closely with the Moab Area um, Housing Task Force and the Land Trust so that we know what each other is doing and that we're gathering data all of the time. In fact, there are five organizations, including the Multicultural Center, that's tracking every single month how many people we're interacting with that are literally homeless, meaning living in a place not meant for human habitation, or at imminent risk, meaning homelessness would be likely without intervention within 30 days. So we have over a year's worth of that data, and we know if they are chronically homeless, which is situationally homeless, meaning they've been homeless for over a year or for perhaps for a long time, or if something out of, you know, unforeseen happened to create their homelessness, such as domestic violence or the home they were renting was sold and they couldn't find somewhere else to live. So, you know, we were really innovative, I think, but 
we also don't have a, a magic wand. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we celebrate a lot when we are able to help people find permanent stable housing. But I, I think some of this, the things that Moab is facing, certainly the state and the rest of the country is facing in terms of having enough resources, especially for mental health and addiction, it is that is really, really, really difficult when you don't have those those resources or you know if somebody's not well enough to help themselves and there's not a process to to intervene it's it's really it's really difficult so we we do the best that we can with what we've got and we're having really important conversations we're gathering um you know as much funding as we can locally regionally statewide to have the human resources necessary to come up with the solutions that we need. But, you know, I mean, just last year we saw two different trailer park homes go away. So more expensive housing could be built. Mm -hmm. Um, Walnut was Walnut Lane was just the city just awarded that contract. And luckily that will stay housing. But um, we know that it's going to be, you know, not as affordable as it was before because it just that type of level of affordable housing is is really really hard to come by those walnut lane tenants are only well with the price it's it's just yeah right it's price of materials building materials labor everything it just drives everything (laughs) up as we've experienced so it's yeah yeah, it's it's a difficult situation it's a difficult situation but in the meantime i i have to say um uh, thank you because you and the organization really are making a, a really big difference to help a lot of people who really are in trouble or could become in trouble. So thank you. I I appreciate that. And I think gathering as much, you know, training and information as we can on things like, you know, immigration or training about people facing domestic violence or addiction, you know, the more that we learn about these things, the more that we can bring humanity into solutions for, for those things. And, um, I'm, just really happy to be able to the center has we're eight community health workers that are working all day and our community partners like usara moab solutions sea caven the beacon after school program just fantastic people we get to work with so if we can't figure it out i don't know who can right and moab is so lucky to have you guys yeah definitely i've seen the facts and i know that maybe Moab as a whole hadn't seen the effects, but they felt the effects because yeah. I can't imagine Moab without you guys. It would just be, t- yeah. it would be. <laughs> Me either. Yeah. yeah. So, and so, so let's talk about uh, funding. How do you, uh, how do you get funding? Is it, I know you do have uh, certain fundraising events. We, we do. Um, we just got done with one of our biggest one. We call it Multicultural March. We raised uh, just over $45,000 in a month. So that was wonderful. Yes. Um, our the, the center operates on an operating budget of about $425,000. So that's, that's, that's a lot of money, but it's not that much money to pay that many staff plus our immigration attorney. You get good bang for on. the buck. We good bang for the buck, <laughs> yeah. for sure. We make a, we make a dollar stretch. But um, just like any, any nonprofit, we do the work and we're constantly writing grants in the background, um, you know, donations and, and fundraisers, and that's how you survive. We're, we're really fortunate to be sort of a unique uh, operation that doesn't rely so heavily on government funding because government funding, they, they just really 
they try to make you put a square peg in a round hole a lot. Yes. And they require so much. There's so much administrative work that has to be done for the, the money that they give you. And they're so urban lensed often too. They look at things like domestic violence and homelessness and whatever the issue is through a very urban lens because usually that's where those funds are, are coming from. And so I, I spend a lot of my time- A lot of red tape and bureaucracy. Need to kind of do it yeah. a different way because this is not the way- It's not efficient. It's not efficient. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Oh my gosh, yes. Those government and efficiency do not belong mm-hmm. anywhere near each other for some reason. But um, yeah, luckily, you know, I, we, we have a lot of private funding. There's a lot of wonderful private foundations in the state of Utah that, that fund charitable work. Um, and a lot of really generous people as well that are, are willing to, to, to allow us to do the work. And our listeners, here's a, here's a chance. Step yes. up to the plate and, and get to Many know times. them. Yeah, definitely. If you want to make a difference and support your, uh, your community, this is the, one of the best places to really make a donation. So. And I'm happy to be here with a couple of chefs because, you know, even though I do social work and community health work all day long you know our mission we're a resource center a a multicultural resource center and we strive to find things that we can use mediums we can use to create culture as a common experience and foods always you know everybody loves food food is a passport (laughs) food is a passport well you're uh Day of the Dad event is one of my favorite events in Moab, and it's so fun, and it's just like lots of good food and music, and the community loves it and gets together. It's it's become very popular. A lot of people people go there. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of work, but we we love doing it. It's it's a labor of love every year. Right. And that's... is that on a specific date every year? Is that so on the, the Day of the Dead is celebrated on November 1st and 2nd yeah. in Latin American countries. Mm. And we always do our, our celebration the Sunday closest to the actual holiday. So it's it, the date changes every year. I think this year it will be the maybe the 26th or the 27th, I'd have to look, but of October. Right. Mm. That's an event I always look forward to. Yes. <laughs> Great. And then uh, do you, what about? Dancing with the Stars, is that still happen? So, you know, the show became very big, and a big part of that show was uh, we had a volunteer that was a professional professional lighting designer that does big, like, Cirque du Soleil in Vegas, and he was uh, doing that show for us. And they, they moved further away in the country. They used to, his wife used to be a, park ranger here and she was a dancer in the inaugural year and got and was like roped her husband into helping uh-huh. us out with the show and then he helped us out every year so it was um you know a couple of things happened we we couldn't do it because of covid but then also the the multicultural center inevitably changed forever after covid you know the the amount of people that we serve on a regular basis is so much bigger we we now operate the the county, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to see the data from the Grand County Food Bank, but I, I think we probably have the largest food pantry in the whole county because ours is open every single day and they only operate two hours, two days a week, and you can only get one box of food a month. And we do more often than that, and we're open every day. So, and that was a direct result of COVID. A lot of the people that we, um, a lot of the issues that we were seeing, the, the homelessness, like, we're just doing more and different things. And mm-hmm. so 
op- having Oops. Day of the Dead and Day and Dancing with the Moab Stars so close together, and the amount of work that went into that, and yeah. what were the right. capacity of what we're a little overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I think that unfortunately will have to live in its in infamy and its history. But you never know. Never right. say never. It was not happening this year. I can tell you that. So, are you doing anything for Cinco de Mayo? Is the Frenchman asking? Because you know we kind of got in trouble with that. I, I know, sir. I was I was thinking like how how uh, appropriate it was to have a Frenchman here discussing sure. Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> uh, Bernard, you remember? No, I was not there. I think we did a, a Cinco de Mayo celebration. I want to say 2013 might have been the last time that we did it, but but certainly we we did it to take advantage of, you know, everybody knows about Cinco de Mayo, but to as a as a learning tool and part of our mission certainly is cultural education. So you know, mi- dispelling myths about Cinco de Mayo being Mexico's Independence Day, or you know why why it's celebrated most if it's know. celebrated. Okay, most yeah, people let's don't explain know. that. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't have a clue. They say, "Oh, this is a good day to really party." It's yeah, like, it, that's what it is for. It's like the Mexican St. Patty's Day, yeah. right? Um, so Cinco de Mayo is not a, a national holiday in Mexico. No, nope. it is a, a holiday that originated out of the Battle of Puebla which was uh, fought between Mexico and France. So basically, Mexico, after their civil war, had a ton of debt. So they borrowed a bunch of money from Europe. I think from Spain, from France, certainly, uh, and from another European country. And the war ended, and they defaulted on their loan. So Mexico was able to kind of figure out some kind of deferment with with Spain and whoever else they owed money to but France Napoleon was like oh hell no we're gonna we're taking it all like they were like they saw he saw this opportunity to like we're gonna take Mexico or like have a stronghold in Mexico right because you know Napoleon he just wanted to conquer so um so the French came with I want to say and if any historians out there need to correct me at some point in the future please have them on but the french came with something like six thousand uh soldiers to invade mexico in in the battle of puebla and the new president who was um indigenous which was a really big deal for an indigenous person to rise to such a high level of office in mexico had like a third of the amount of soldiers that the the French had and they they won so that was and then he said this is a holiday now Cinco de Mayo will be you know the Battle of Puebla will always be remembered because we we were outnumbered and we were you know didn't have the same kind of advanced artillery and weaponry yeah. that the French had so that was was Cinco de Mayo but mm-hmm. it was you know Mexico's a huge country i think it was it just didn't become a, a, a national holiday. Um, but I, I think it, it is a cool... I, I was reading today, took a little bit of time, and I knew that history because, like I said, we had done some cultural education when we had a, a little celebration at the MVMC several years ago. But its popularity in the United States, you talked about there was a, a time in our country's history where certainly we have a, a huge history of... of Mexico's our neighbors, right? Of Mexicans right. coming and working here, and that wasn't always 
such a, a difficult thing. It was it used to be a much easier process. Well, that's that's true going way back. So in the late 1800s, a lot of Mexican people were coming to California for the gold rush. Yep. So they heard about the Battle of Puebla, and they started organizing. They were they had moved here either settled here or we're just working here and there's a lot of things that in California history that you can look up like the first Cinco de Mayo celebration was in the late 1800s in the United States because they were celebrating the the Mexican win over the French there and a lot of that had to do with the abolishment of slavery because our country was still going through its battle its own civil war that largely was around if slavery was legal or not. And when Mexico won its independence from Spain, they had just won their civil war and abolished slavery. But there were still a lot of indigenous people that were being enslaved mm-hmm. along with black people in the United States. So, yeah, that I, I thought nice. that was really, really cool that there were really early advocacy groups in California and these Californian Mexican American workers that were celebrating Mexico's win there because they were afraid that the United States, if France had won, then they could have a stronghold in Mexico and they would have sided with the Confederates and it would have been easier to keep slavery legal here in the United States. Wow. Yeah, it's quite, it's, it, I mean, you know what's what's interesting is that um, you know listening to you and I love history and everything and it's like uh, with with everything going so fast these days with the computers and the iPad and your phone and 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 you are very very busy every day you kind of forget the past but the past is really what shaped uh, who we are and where we are today. And it's really neat to to be able to go back. I was watching the um, uh, something about the the pyramids. Um, it was like last week or something like this. It's just like it's like yeah, it'd be cool to just go and to go over there and just like you know, you go back. I don't know, a few thousand years, and it's like yeah, that's that's what life is all about. Well, what what's upsetting too is like, especially I'm sure the younger, a lot of the younger people don't realize that I don't know what percentage, twenty five or thirty percent of the United States was Mexico. Yes. You know, yes. And, and you know, if you go to California or stuff, you see that culture and it's so mm-hmm. sad that mm-hmm. uh, now we have this these hard-drawn borders. Yes. As opposed to like, you know, the the European Union, how they kind of bound together and, and went as a unity and as a Exposed as a, ex- yeah, <laughs> you know the United States went the opposite. Yeah. You know we have our borders and yeah. we were going to keep them out. But if we could do something more like that and and have like a more of a of these stories, it's about money. It all comes yeah. down to like somebody not having you know have needing to control some kind of economy or you know that's it seems like it all comes down to that. You still have to be very very careful with. Uh, um, migration patterns i mean you look at what's what's happening in europe it is not rosy at all well, i mean it is is he has created a lot of challenges so so the, you know all those things are you know um 
Uh, I think that's in process, I would say. I mean, European Union is very, very young. I mean, for such a old, very, very old countries who have been there forever were, you know. And uh, yeah, they, they have their own challenge. There's one thing, though, because we, we, we're done with, I think, a little bit of the politics. And so can we talk food? Can we talk Cinco de Mayo? Can we talk about Mexican food? Good Mexican food? Yeah, that's another thing. I was exposed to real Mexican food when I moved to California. Oh, man. I mm. So working in the kitchens in California, I was exposed to and and was taught. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a chef, you're also you're, you're taught when working in the kitchen by, by the Mexican culture and that. And you learn from them because, they're you know, the best meals in a restaurant or in the back, in the yeah. kitchen. Very true. And uh, I've, I learned a lot about uh, Mexican cooking. And I, I, the thing with Mexican cooking, though, is really be like, um, I would say, be like French cooking. I mean, every single region has a specialty. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it really, uh, you cannot say Mexican cuisine. You really have to break it down by region because all those regions, you have something very different to offer. And they have a, old culture that and they've been doing some of those recipes goes back thousands of years oh, yeah, and, and they're so they're so integrated into their culture and society like so i have a gift for you today as a matter of fact this Ooh, is uh is this mole it is mole i so love mole i brought that for you today you know i just had a birthday so this is so happy oh, there you go thank you so i'm sh i'm sure you know what to do with it but Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I uh, actually, on my actual birthday, it was April 16th, um, a, a friend of mine called my husband and said, what, I want to surprise her. Where should I, where should I take her? And my husband said, take her to the red iguana. She loves the, the mole. Have you, have you been to the red Oh, the red iguana. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. so that was, um, that was great. But there's so many ingredients in this sauce. Right. It's I mean, it's a very just, complicated yes. sauce. It's one of the most complicated sauces. But there's there different moles. There's so many different so moles. And there's so different so yes. many different moles. Yeah. Uh, uh, that was taught to me by Cruz. Oh nice. <laughs> and so it's uh, it's very good. It's uh, so it's you know, I don't have much of that left, so enjoy it. I brought it <laughs> I for you. I will, absolutely. Do you guys have a particular Mexican, besides mole, Mexican food or, or meal that you enjoy? You know, I I love it all, but I, like I said, you know, I was used to, before I moved to California, I was used to American Mexican food, which mm -hmm. is not Mexican food mm -hmm. at all, and, you know, nachos and all that. Right. And And so when I was, a, what surprised me, most was the freshness, mm -hmm. especially in California. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go to a Mexican restaurant, you're getting fresh fish, and and yes. the salsas and everything are just fresh and just vibrant. Yeah, anywhere you're and close to the food source, the food is just going to be better. And you were really fortunate to be right. in California, where so much of that food was probably grown. Yeah. Um, so that that's just yeah. Just in the vastness, it's it's like there's. There's a lot of variety mm -hmm. out there, like we were saying, is, and that, that's also what surprised me. Uh, and I've seen Mexican food made, I've seen crepes mm -hmm. made with Mexican food and, and mm -hmm. all sorts of different ingredients that most people wouldn't suspect or mm -hmm. was Mexican. or uh, So I think that was the, what really made me fall in love with the Mexican food was 
the vastness and it yeah. just the variety. It's like you could. It's a, it was many, a surprise you know, to me. Simple, simple things to you know, um, cucumber with a little bit of lime and tahini. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. something that simple, or a mango with with lime and tahini, or even just the lime is so delicious. The thing that I love is the um, all the type of ceviches that you can make. Oh, so mm-hmm. many! Right. I think the best is the Peruvian ceviche, in in my opinion, or the Costa Rican ceviche that I've had. There's a Costa Rican restaurant in Uray. He, oh really? Yes, he makes amazing ceviche. So I used to, so I used to, li- I mean, was still living to a certain extent in San Diego, and uh, you go to the wine region, which is just south of uh, of San Diego, and then going to toward the ocean, you have a region who is like I would say, Valle de Guadalupe is about fifty years. Um, maybe 50 years ago in uh, in Napa. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, amazing chefs, amazing food, uh, all, you know, uh, ocean to table or farm to table. Or, I mean, it's just like incredible. The wine is incredible. The only thing is you don't have too much exportation of the wine because taxes are very, very high. But in the meantime, when you go there, it is just remarkable. And you look at, if you go to, um, when you go out of uh, Valle, then you're right on the ocean. And, I mean, you have all the shrimp, all the, you can you can dream about. You get the shrimp, you have your Gara de Leon, which is a big scallop, and you have the uh, the red clams, the chocolate clams, mm-hmm. those big clams. Just open it and make a ceviche and just you eat it right there. You can taste the ocean. It's really, it's really incredible. And also all the all the fish. I mean, is is just amazing, really amazing. Well, I think what has drove the well, for one, th- there's been a seems to be a really surgence of of the popularity of Mexican food lately, yes. and how it's it's really sprung up and become you know a, a, yeah. the cuisine. Yeah. And you know, you see high end Mexican places now, yeah. and but what really I think is the Mexican cuisine. A lot of it has come from poor cultures and stuff who, it, mm-hmm. you know, they they exactly. learn to utilize every bit of the foods. Mm-hmm. And if it's an animal, every bit of the animal is used and you don't waste anything, uh, you know. Absolutely. And it's developed into a cuisine that is just, I don't know, it's, it's like the vastness, you know, like I say, utilizing everything and how to cook it, how to make a great dish out of, mm-hmm. out of something so simple, yeah. which is, which is how it evolved. And, and it's, it's roots. Like I say, there's so many different, uh, different regions in that. Yeah. And, I, I hope Moab will get, I know, um, I lived in, in Salt Lake from 99 to 09 and I know that the Harmon's there now, which is just like a, a regular grocery store. You can buy fire roasted chiles, just like they have like a roaster and you can just buy them fresh anytime. If you wanted to make, add that to your dinner mm-hmm. that night or make chile verde, I'm like, wow, we need, we need that here. <laughs> right. And they, and you know, they have so many different varieties of peppers, oh, yeah. beans and, corn and it's I mean, it's it's not ending it's yes. just it's and yeah. it's so interesting no, mexican food is the best i yeah. think so from one pot to barbecues to i mean to everything it's just it's it's really really good and what what is really good also is that um 
they're sourcing, they really work closely with the farmers, with the ranchers. And whomever has a restaurant, for example, or, mm -hmm. you know, you just buy the best and you can really taste what the ingredient is supposed to be. And food is such a big part of their culture, yes. you know. Yeah. All the celebrations, Cinco de Mayo and... Well, not Cinco de Mayo, yeah. as we've said. But, well, in uh, Puebla, they're still what's the, I was but, trying yeah. to think mm -hmm. of the, um, oh, when when the girl turns of age. Uh, the, the quinceanera. Quinceanera. Mm -hmm. they, all their big parties and that, they always mm -hmm. involve food, and they just get together and do these great big meals yeah. that, uh, that go on and on. It's like the it's myth. Like, the myth is, where is the um, Caesar salad come from? Most people will tell you, is it it's Italy, right? I mean, it's Dorobain salad, it's Parmigiano, it's, and it's not. No. It is from Tijuana. Yeah. Really? It's from TJ, yeah. So Javier Pacencia, which is one of the tough chefs in, a, in a, um, Mexico and actually in the U.S. as well, is a really good friend of mine. His family owns it. He owns the, uh, they, they own the, they own the restaurant. And when you go in that restaurant and you open the door, it's like you're in Paris. Wow. It is just amazing. It's in Tijuana. I, I was wondering, you know, we don't see there's all these new fusions, but we don't see a lot of like Mexican French fusion restaurants. But it sounds like this is existing in Tijuana. Yeah, I mean, but but I think that uh, you, if you look at, uh, for example, Pujol, Pujol is the best restaurant. Uh, one, I, I think is one of the best in Mexico It's in Mexico City. And I mean, it's like it's a three star Michelin. I mean, it is incredible. It is really, uh, uh, it's designed, it's focused, it is, those, those, are the, those are the people who are continue to, to really elevate and educate the, uh, the masses about what is going on in Mexico when it comes to culinary. So it's really, it's really, really awesome. But as a, if you want to go and, you, and it's not really far, and you go to the Valle, for example, then you will be able to, to really discover some, uh, some amazing little jewels, I would say. So there is a restaurant, I uh, forgot the name of it right now, uh, it is in the Valle, and the chef worked for a friend of mine, Daniel Bouloui, who was a three-star mission in, in New York. And he opened that restaurant, my goodness, like 25 years ago, something like this. And he's been there forever, and got married, got family, it's just like... Is just just amazing. And there's nothing better than a fresh-made corn tortilla mm -hmm. that's just like warm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we need just, a tortilla here in Moab. Yeah, wouldn't that be we great? We need tacos al pastor. We need mm -hmm. a tortilla. Mm -hmm. Whoever's listening, make it happen. <laughs> right. Yes, the roasted chiles. There's, there's a lot of gaps in food here. There that are. Could be filled. There are. Yeah. But it is getting better. I mean, you know, years ago, but you know. And, when I came back in 91, it's like there was not a very uh, selection of restaurants and it's expanding mm -hmm. and uh, developing because of the Mexican culture, a lot of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hopefully it will continue to expand. Maybe will we get a French restaurant anytime in Moab, do you think? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. You like that? No. No. You know why? Because I, I have that little Jean Bernard, the little baby. That's my full-time job. Yeah. So it's perfect. Well, who, who, when, which one of your French chef friends wants to do it since you're busy oh, with the yeah, baby? No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, there is, if there is a place where there is really big potential for restaurants, yeah. 
it is in Moab. I mean, there is definitely a demand. And it doesn't need to be a brick-and-mortar restaurant either. Yeah. Those great food trucks come along yeah. that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. put out some yeah. great food. Absolutely. Yeah. I suspect when I'm in City Market and I hear the, the French and I don't know what they're saying and they're in the bread aisle, well, they're probably no saying, where is all the good there's not that many French, not that many French, but the other day I was with the little, my little boy, you know, he's in the cart, you know, and I'm, I'm walking the house. And then I hear uh, there was a French couple and say, Oh my God, there's French people here. I heard people who speak French. I didn't say anything. It was like, Oh my God, yes, welcome. Because this is a beautiful people, and European especially, love this area. I mean, it is magical. There is so many arches to visit. There is the the. I mean, it's you have the mountain, you get the river, you get so much. I mean, it's really really awesome. We we all know Moab's been discovered, and yes. we're going through the growing pains. Yes, we are. Which uh, you are help helping to deal with. <laughs> yes, we all are in our own way. Your family, if I may ask. Is from from where? So, um, well, I I grew up in northern Minnesota in a okay. small city called Duluth. It's mm-hmm. uh, situated on Lake Superior, and where I grew up, it has a, a bridge called the Aerial Lift Bridge, and it's one of two in the world, and the other is in France. Mm-hmm. So, yep. in Duluth, I, I think is yes. French. Yes. But um, but my my ethnic background, my my father is mm-hmm. Mexican and Mescalero Apache Indian, and my mom is Scandinavian. I'm a, that's I'm a mixed awesome. kid. But that's really, really awesome to to see where we all come from, you know? I mean, it's just like that journey, and then we're here today. Right. Mm-hmm. And how'd you wind up in Moab? Oh, oh my gosh. That's, a, that's another, that's another <laughs> <Okay>. story. <laughs> it's another story, but, you know, right. a boy, I guess, yeah. Yeah. you could say. Usually the way it works. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. But we're glad you came. <laughs> so Cinco de, Cinco de Mayo is next week. Get your tequila out. That's it. So, hey, what's your favorite tequila? So take it on mezcal. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Take it on mezcal. Oh, I'm into the mezcal right now. Oh, Me yes. Too. Oh, so, yes. Ooh, yes. But I think, like, you know, if I'm not going to spend an obnoxious amount of money uh, on tequila, if I'm... I really like the Corralejo. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like that. Or, you know, Espolón, too, if you're just going to yeah. basic Espolón, yeah. feed a lot of people. But I, I've been enjoying the mezcal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm kind of on a kick. You know, mezcal for me is a little bit like uh, when you go on that uh, that journey of tasting all the Armagnac and the Cognac. It's a very, very refined uh, um Product. I mean, it's really or sco- amazing. It reminds me scotch. Or scotch as well. Because yeah, it's exactly. got the smokiness, yeah. like yeah. scotch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I mean, just, you know, for me, it's just like, just neat. That's it. Just mm-hmm. like, and, and you don't, it kills me when people do yeah. shots. If you do shots, it's going to be cheap stuff. You can right, do cheap right. stuff. But why? Right. You know, you do, you just do, you have to sip it. You have to enjoy it. I like also when sometimes I burned the, uh, uh, like the, uh, an orange and I just burn it a little bit and I put it on the rim of the, uh, of the glass. And you, so it gives you a little bit more and ends a little bit the smoke, you know? Because you have the oil who just stays and touch your lips, it's really, really good. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's really amazing. I see, see, I'm not mixology is is awesome, but do not lose the flavor of what is your 
primary liqueur. Right. It, I well, had a similar if, experience. I had uh, I ordered an espresso at Bin Seven O Seven in Grand mm-hmm. Junction. Do you guys like that restaurant? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's good. Very good. Very good. Yes. Great cocktails. Yeah. And he asked if I wanted a lemon rind, and I was, you know, I had never had an espresso with lemon, but it was the same experience with the the rind on the the rim, and just added the perfect cut to the acidity it was so excellent so you know, you know, now we can't have espresso any other way you no know that this was created in italy right no yes and what happened is this was to mask the flavor of the espresso those were for the workers and because the espresso was not really a great quality uh-huh. so when you put a little bit of that uh, uh, um, that lemon on the on the rim, I would say, mm-hmm. or you can put it inside, but on the rim usually. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is it changes the flavor of the coffee, and it just makes it much more subtle and much more aromatic. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting that you know one thing like this can really change your experience. It, well, yeah, I, seriously. Really, oh, so that's why amazing. I used to drink. You know, have the lemon and the salt with the cheap tequilas to mask the flavor but if you have a good quality tequila Tequila. or a mask you do not you do not do that it's not jägermeister little frenchman come to america that's me and then there is a bottle of mezcal with a usando inside which is the warm Uh and i didn't know what it was so and then i was told that this was actually kind of the really um, cheap version of mezcal and i was like jet fuel and i was like yeah and you have to eat the you have to eat the warm i'm like are you kidding me i'm like where am i <laughs> and uh no of course i didn't do it but it was just like yeah that was my that was my first and then i didn't like mezcal for many 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 years and then i tasted mezcal and i discovered mezcal actually a friend of mine at the restaurant in new york city and uh she had uh she had a collection of mezcal and she said, you mezcal? I said, no, I don't drink mezcal. This is smoky. I don't like it. And she said, well, you have to taste this. And then everything changed. It was like, wow. It was just amazing. I think a lot of people have had that experience of mm-hmm. of drinking cheap tequila and then yeah. having a bad experience, yeah. but Too not not experiencing yeah. good quality tequila or mezcal. It's yeah. like you have to experience you it. You have to, to experience it. It's, it's right just too way. bad that... You know, the state has the laws where you don't have the the variety in our yeah. stores and so that. We have but to travel go to Grand Junction, then you will have you, you have or Durango. They have mm-hmm. they have a mezcal bar over there that yeah. is uh, great, and you can uh, have the experience of a good quality mm-hmm. drink. So, so this being said, um, this is pretty much the end of our show. It's too bad yeah, because I could so. we could talk about this stuff for hours so we want to make sure that everybody enjoy Cinco de Mayo thank you and uh, make sure that you stay uh, responsible I know this is the day that we love to have our tequila and our beers and our, all these beautiful things but you know be be safe and responsible have a good time and please you know experiment uh, with some of the best I would say Mexican recipe. It doesn't have to be difficult, but the flavors are just beautiful. And we have a lot of these ingredients available here locally. So, you know, just go and shop a couple of days before and, you know, just make your uh, your, your beautiful uh, um, 
Mexican food and have a, have a good time. Yeah, and thank you, Rihanna, for thank joining us. And, and thank you for your years of service You're here welcome. in the community. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we, we really appreciate everything that you do. And uh, we know that it takes so much. It takes a big heart. It takes passion and, uh, uh, and, and compassion as well to do all the things that you do. So thank you for... Thank you. For from everyone in this city, from us. Thank you. Okay, and thank you, everyone out there, for joining the Buck and Bernie show. Yeah, have a good time. So, and we'll see you on the next first Monday of the month. And viva Cinco de Mayo. Be safe. Chef's Adventures with Buck and Bernie airs on the first Monday of every month at 4 p.m. Head to kzmu.org for archives and recipes.